Our scripture reading for this morning comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 12 to 18. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. And God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. All who confess that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we are afraid, it is for fear of punishment, and this shows that we have not fully experienced his perfect love. Good morning, Elevation. It is good to be with you in this online space. For those of you who may be joining for the first time or the first time in a while, my name is Brandon and I'm the lead pastor here in Waterloo. Every Sunday morning, we gather together around the words of this sacred book that we have just heard from, inviting God to shape and form our lives. I was listening to a podcast this week and it had nothing to do with faith or religion, but the host and the guest started talking about their religious upbringing. One of them was Catholic and one of them was Lutheran. And they talked about how they'd really set aside so much of that part of their lives. Uh, but one of them made a comment. They said, you can still offer your kids a moral compass without using scripture. And I thought that was so interesting in the midst of preparing a sermon rooted in scripture. And I thought, you know what? Uh, yes, I understand. There are things about in the Bible that are difficult for us to understand. There are some things that are difficult for us to swallow. Um, but there is so much goodness in these sacred texts. Hebrews chapter four, verses 12 and 13, we read, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, words like these are bound to make us a little nervous at first, Nothing is hidden, yikes. Uh, everything uncovered, wow. Uh, but even more importantly, and the real point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make is that these words should stir us hope. God's word to us should stir up hope. A couple of verses later, the author writes, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. As we unpack these ancient texts each week, we're reminded again and again that God is waiting for us, anticipating our invitation, ready to offer mercy and grace. And so for one final week in this series, we'll turn to John's teachings in 1 John, specifically chapters 3 and 4, to help us explore an area of life that deserves our full and close attention, our identity. Now, a number of years ago, I read a book by Robert Weber called The Divine Embrace. And as I was doing some research this week, I came across a quote from this book. He writes that God's vision for us is a reversal of our present identity. 
Now, when I came across this quote again, I had written it down years ago, I thought, wow, that's a pretty loaded statement that God wants to reverse our present identity. If you're anything like me, you're probably thinking, well, I mean, there's at least some good here, right? Like, do I have to reverse it all? Is, is that really the point? Now, religion, Christianity and specifically, has a reputation for making people feel bad about themselves. And I want to be careful that we don't think that that's what's going on here. This isn't about like, you are so bad that God has to reverse everything and you have to become the exact opposite of who you are. But I was trying to think of an analogy. I was trying to think about something that could explain what Weber was trying to get at here. And the thing that came to mind was like when you take laundry out of the dryer, and you have a sock that's turned inside out. Now, for some of you, uh, if you've never done the laundry before, first of all, shame on you. Um, and, but second of all, I have an image up here on the screen where you can see what a sock looks like when it's turned inside out. If a child were to wear this sock around for the day, they would have nightmares at night. It looks so scary. But honestly, I think it's a fitting image for us as we think about the way that we live our lives. What you think of as you and what other people think of as you is only a fuzzy and somewhat distorted depiction of who you really are. Every one of us, fearfully and wonderfully made by a loving creator, has an identity that can only be revealed in all of its image-bearing glory if we are turned inside out. And that is what God wants to do with us. That's what Weber means when he writes that God's vision is for a reversal of our present identity. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. It's not about pretending that you're someone you're not or rejecting the unique aspects of your personality. It's about realizing that you are so much more than you are today. Who I am is so much more than who I see when I look in the mirror or who you see when you look at me in the eye. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've been exploring our identity in Christ, and John has introduced us to a couple of important themes. We are children of God, and we are loved by God. Well, this morning, we're going to wrap this little series up by taking a look at one final thing that John left with his first century audience, and by turns with us, that by faith, we are filled with God. Now, there are two kinds of drivers in the world. There are drivers who pay attention to how much gas is in the vehicle, and those who don't. My wife is one of those who does not. And so maybe a year, two years ago, I can't remember when, uh, she was going out with her mom and sisters to, for a shopping trip out at Costco. And uh, before she left, she said, oh, I'm gonna take the van. And I pay attention to these things. So I said, oh, the van is very low on gas because someone didn't put any gas in it the last time they drove it. So I said, before you go to Costco, you just need to stop at the first gas station you see. She's like, yeah, 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 I got it. Five minutes later, I get a phone call. We ran out of gas. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah, we ran out of gas. Where are you? She said, well, we're on Columbia, um, past Fisher Hallman. I said, oh, okay. So you're like past the Petro Canada on this corner. She's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Just come and save us. So I did. Got in the car, drove over, filled up our little four liter tank, uh, went up, dumped, poured it in the gas uh, compartment of our van. Went to start it, it wouldn't even start. They had parked, um, well said pulled over and parked on a slight angle and so the gas tank, all the gas I'd poured in was just in like this bottom corner and it wasn't getting into the engine. So I had to go back to the gas station, refill that little four liter container, back to the van, pour it in and then finally she was on her way again. Before we can talk about being filled with God, we need to acknowledge that it's just not possible to run our lives on empty. We need something to fill us up. 
Someone or something has to come to the rescue. And the truth is there are actually plenty of options out there for how we can get our proverbial grand caravans rolling down the street again. We can fill our lives with work, with friends, with pleasure, with accomplishments, with all kinds of things that we could add to this list, all of which can be good in and of themselves. But as most of us have probably already discovered, the fuel efficiency of a life that is filled with X is rarely as advertised. Whatever we allow in our lives, it will expand and it will fill our empty space. And then we learn for good or for ill how to fill those spaces again the next time that we're running low. And so if it's friends, we can go back to those friends. If it's work, we can work even more. But then along comes scripture with its ability to divide between joint and marrow. And we're pressed to consider whether these things are truly filling us up or not whether these things are making us more or less like the new creation we're supposed to be. Brennan Manning writes, the sounds of inner peace, harmony, and consonance resonate in the heart attuned to the Father's will. While agitation, conflict, dissonance, and contretemps res resonate in the untuned heart singing its own song. Now, this analogy struck me when I read it a few weeks ago. And it's worth some consideration. The questions that I asked myself that morning and have asked since then is, what song is my heart singing? And what station am I tuned into? Now, I have this habit that the rest of my family uh, can't stand. I love listening to a baseball game on the radio. That's not the part they can't, they can't stand, but for me, you know, when you drive a little further away from the station's location, uh, AM radio can get a little scratchy and fuzzy, um, but I just keep listening because I'm listening to the game and I can kind of listen through the fuzz, um, but sometimes it gets really bad. And then somebody, usually I feel like it's Sophie, will say like, okay, you can't actually hear anything now. Can we please turn it off? And finally I'm like, yeah, you're right. I can't even hear what they're saying. And we turn it off. Sometimes we find ourselves listening to stations that are no good for us at all. So when I think about my life, am I agitated? or confused or experiencing conflict because of the circumstances that I'm in or is it because of the station that my heart is tuned into? Now, that's a really interesting thing for us to think about. Here's another way to phrase this. If my heart were tuned to the Father's will, would I feel the way that I'm feeling right now? Would I think these thoughts? Would I do these same things if my heart was tuned to the Father's will? Now I know what you might be saying, it's the same thing that I thought, which is like, well, I mean, circumstances happen and we just respond to them. Well, partly, uh, but there's something else that we can learn from this. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul writes, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. So this is a pretty big, bold statement. He's saying like, I can have that peace, that harmony, that consonance resonating in my heart regardless of the circumstances going on around me. Now he said that he's learned the secret. Fortunately, we don't have to wait long. A couple verses later, he tells us the secret is, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I can have this contentment in any circumstance because God has given me his strength. Paul understood that only God could truly fill him up. Only God could give him the strength that he needed to face what it, he would need and whatever would come his way. So he tuned his dial heavenward and he allowed the music of God to fill the airways of his life. 
Now it's taken me a little while, but I wanna get to the reading that we had this morning from 1 John chapter four. In verse 13, we read, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. Now, after Jesus' shocking execution and even more shocking resurrection, he told his inner circle to wait for him in Jerusalem because he would be sending someone who would provide guidance and support and power that they would need to continue what he had started. We read about this encounter in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, we may be either too familiar or too unfamiliar with this story to understand its significance. So I just wanna highlight it for a moment. Through an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place of God shifted from a man-made temple to the lives of believers who were gathered together in Jesus' name. This was a monumental shift in understanding of who God was. God would no longer dwell in the Holy of Holies, this particular place called the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant, behind a special curtain in a segregated part of the temple that the high priest would only enter one part of the year. That is where God's people understood that God lived and that God dwelled, no. But on the day of Pentecost, God announced that he would dwell in the hearts of his people. And so John writes, if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. See, it's not some thing that God gives to fill empty spaces. God gives us himself. Or as Brian McLaren explains it, God's spirit is the way God comes in to fill the empty spaces in your life. Now, in one sense, that's all there is to it. We believe God enters our hearts and our lives by faith. But then we almost immediately run into a problem. What if there's no room for God in this life of mine because of all the other things that I've been filling up my empty spaces with, because of all the other things that I've turned to for meaning or strength or significance or identity? As I was thinking about this, I had this memory from back when I was a leader in our church youth group many years ago. And we were given, probably by our youth pastor, this book called My Heart, Christ's Home uh, by a pastor named Robert Munger. It was an allegory. And basically he wrote the story about how each uh, kind of room in a house represented an area of our heart that Jesus wants to live in. And so I remember kind of turning this into a dramatic sketch and we had this little like thing where people would act out different scenes to depict what it was like for Jesus walking into these various rooms. Uh, well, we're not gonna have a drama for you this morning, but I thought what I would do was at least walk through uh, this allegory in short order. So basically he says, you know, I invited Jesus into my home, into my life. Jesus said he'd dwell in me. And then I thought the best thing to do is probably give him a tour of the house that he's about to live in. So I said, Jesus, come on, I'm going to show you around the house. And he goes, the first place that I took him was the library. This is the life of the mind. It's, uh, it was filled with books and with magazines. And, and I'm showing Jesus around, but, but occasionally Jesus would pick up something and he'd say, well, why are you reading this? Or why are you filling your mind with this? Like, wouldn't it be better for you to be, you know, focusing on scripture? Or wouldn't it be better for you to be 
having different images hanging on the walls than these. And uh, so he goes to the library and Jesus begins to talk about how he needs to dwell in that life of the mind. And then they move on to the next room, which is the dining room. This is about uh, appetites and desires that we have. And so he kind of shows Jesus, look at all this food that's spread out. Not food actually, but, but the things that, that mean uh, a lot to him. Success, importance, possession, money, etc. And he says, look at all of this great food. And, and, but Jesus is sitting at the table, but he's not eating anything. And he's like, why aren't you eating anything at my table? And, and Jesus is like, well, I eat a different kind of food than this. And, and to be honest, I can give you something that's even more satisfying than what you've got here. They move into the living room and it's a beautiful, comfortable space. And Jesus says, this would be a great place for us to hang out. We could start every day here, spending an hour together, just, just being with one another. And, and so the guy's like, yeah, this is perfect. Let's do this. And, and at the beginning of Jesus' time, living in his, the home of his heart, that's what they do. They meet every day. But then of course, the time goes, as time goes by, they meet less and less frequently. And so the challenge is in that living room to spend time with Jesus. Well, they go into the workroom and there's a bench and there's a bunch of tools scattered around and, and a couple little projects half done. And Jesus says, what are you doing here? Like, what are you building for, for myself and for other people in your life? And he's like, well, I don't really know. I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't really have much to offer. And, and Jesus says, well, let's spend time in the workroom then because I wanna, I wanna show you how to build your life for other people. They go to the rec room, and this is maybe where today, it might be where you have your big screen TV, it may be where you have a pool table, whatever it is, um, the place where you hang out. And the guy's like, okay, Jesus, you're probably not going to like what's in here because your idea of fun is just very different from mine. So I'm going to go out and have some fun in this room, but you can like go back to that living room or something else. And Jesus is like, do you understand? Like, you can't truly have fun if you don't bring me with you. And so they have this, this conversation about the rec room. So he's given him a tour of the whole house or so he thinks, but there's one day he kind of sees Jesus standing there and he's like, what's going on? Like, you know, what's that look on your face? And Jesus says, there's something smells, something's off in this house. And the guy's like, I don't know, I don't smell it. I don't know what's going on. And Jesus says, oh yeah, it is. I think it's upstairs. And so they walk upstairs together and there's this hall closet and Jesus says, the smell is coming from in there. And the guy's like, I'm not opening that door. There's no way I'm opening that door. And he says, if you want to open it, then you got to clean it out yourself. And Jesus says, I would love to. And so there's something, there's something hidden and dark and, and dangerous in this closet. But Jesus goes into it and he cleans out that hall closet. And so they walk through this whole house and he begins to realize that it's not just like letting Jesus dwell in your life, letting God fill up your life. It's about all these specific areas of this home where Jesus needs to dwell. And at the end of it all, he kind of says, you know what? The reality is I can't take care of this home on my own. I want to transfer the title over to you. I want this to be your home and then you build it as you see fit. This analogy is a reminder that we need to pause and consider what it actually looks like to make our lives the kind of place that God can dwell. Most of us wouldn't dream of having someone over to our actual home without at least giving it a once over. Things like loading the dishwasher, picking up scattered laundry, replacing the rolls of toilet paper in the bathroom, like the things that you just got to take care of, the very basics, right? So why would we not think about getting our lives in order for God to dwell in them? Henry Nouwen writes, in the spiritual life, the word discipline means the effort to create some space in which God can act. Discipline means to prevent everything in your life from being filled up. And remember, we spend a lot of time filling our lives with a lot of different things. And so we need to take some time, make some effort in getting rid of some of this space to create more space for God. In his gospel, 
John writes in chapter 14, verse 23, that anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. It's a beautiful image, this of God making his home with us, God filling us up with his presence. Or as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Christ will make his home in your hearts through faith. Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite him in. Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts, living within you as you trust in him. By constantly using your faith, the life of Christ will be released deep inside you and the resting place of his love will become the very source and root of your life. Those are powerful, inviting words. And when this happens, those people and places that we went to to be filled up in the past, work, friends, pleasure, accomplishments, they take on a new life and vitality when we're not counting on them to fill us in the way that they never could to begin with. Now, in just a couple of minutes, we're going to dismiss. Uh, we're going to actually end our service together with a song. And one of the lines in the song says, I could hold on to who I am and never let you change me from the inside. And that is an option for us. We can kind of hope God kind of shoehorns himself in somewhere in our life. And we don't have to do the change if we don't want to. But there's an invitation for us to enter that change today. So we're going to close with the song and then we'll head into our time of discussion. And the time of discussion will be over Zoom. There'll be a link in the comments where you can hop on. It was also shared in the weekly email. And you will be able to hop on for some discussion from 11 o'clock till 1145. So we might be intimidated by all this, this idea of like clearing out a space, making space for God to dwell in our lives so he can truly fill us up. But as John reminds us, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. And so if this is intimidating for you, I wanna encourage you to embrace the love of God. Ruth Haley Barton writes that your desire for more of God than you have right now, your longing for love, your need for deeper levels of spiritual transformation than you've experienced so far is the truest thing about you. You might think that your woundedness or sinfulness is the truest thing about you, or that your giftedness or your personality type or your job title or your identity as husband or wife, mother or father somehow defines you. But in reality, it is your desire for God and your capacity to reach for more of God than you have right now that is the deepest essence of who you are. God is waiting for us, anticipating our invitation, ready to offer mercy and grace. Jesus' words in Revelation 3.20, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they with me. Let us pray. Lord, we are grateful that we can open the pages of this sacred text and understand more about who we are, that we are your children, that we are loved by you, and that we can be filled by you, that your presence can dwell in our lives. This is who we are. And I pray that you would help us by your spirit to accept and embrace this identity, our identity as a new creation in Christ. We pray these things with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. Peace to you.